Hey, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today I am welcoming back to the show the filmmaker Errol Morris. As I'm sure uh, you regular tuners in know, Errol and I have been having a series of conversations about his life and his work and his preoccupations, which uh, all in some way or other have to do with the nature of evidence and truth. Errol Morris, I'd say, is at heart a kind of philosophically-minded detective. In fact, he has worked as an actual private detective in the past, and he has continued his detective work in his movies. The most famous example is certainly The Thin Blue Line, a film that helped exonerate a man wrongfully convicted of murder. The last time we spoke, uh, Errol and I talked about his long-running reinvestigation of one of the most publicized crimes in recent American history. It's the case of Jeffrey McDonald, an army doctor who was accused of killing his wife and two young daughters in 1970. He was ultimately convicted in 1979, and he's serving three consecutive life terms in prison. Errol Morris has a brand new book out about the case, and at the end of our last conversation, he had this to say. Please get my book. It just is out, and I'd love some feedback to let me know whether it's any damn good or not. Well, I could not refuse Errol Morris. So I read the book, and you're going to hear the ensuing discussion today. The book, by the way, is entitled A Wilderness of Error, The Trials of Jeffrey McDonald. And in it, Errol Morris argues that those trials were in no way fair and that justice was not done. He says that Jeffrey McDonald uh, is in some sense a prisoner of a particular skewed narrative that police seized on early in their investigation and that the prosecution ran with and which was pretty much cemented in the popular imagination by a best-selling book, Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis, which was in turn spun off into a TV miniseries watched by millions. Both the book and the miniseries presented McDonald as a psychopathic killer. And then those were followed by yet another book, now considered a classic, by Janet Malcolm, The Journalist and the Murderer. The journalist of the title is Joe McGinnis, and the murderer is Jeffrey McDonald. That's pretty much how he has remained in the public mind, a murderer, ever since. So here we are, 30 years after Jeffrey McDonald's conviction, and along comes Errol Morris, picking apart the received storyline and trying to get back to the facts of the matter as much as anybody can get back to the facts at this late date. Here's my conversation with Errol Morris. Well, Errol, uh, thank you for one more round of conversation. Well, thank you for doing all of this. <laughs> um, I want to state at the outset that what we are about to do is a book interview, sort of like what Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes fame called a book show. Uh, and he didn't call it that with, with great affection, a show that's about an author and his or her book that doesn't itself investigate independently the claims, but speaks solely through the filter of the author. That's what we're about to do. I do not know anything about this case, or I don't know much beyond what you've written in your book. Well, here's my hope. My hope is that this is not an ordinary book about true crime. I want to turn everybody reading it into an investigator. You're not just simply being told a story. You're being given evidence and asked to think about it for yourself. 
Well, you do lay out a lot of evidence in various forms. And, and in fact, as some people have pointed out, the book bears a bit of a resemblance to some of your films in the way you do that, uh, presenting uh, exhibits for us to consider along the way. Um, but on the other hand, this one, unlike your films, has a narrator, and it's you, and you have a real point of view here. And let, let's not uh, mince words. You do believe Jeffrey McDonald is innocent. You do believe he was railroaded. You do believe that the government has conducted what you call a vendetta against him. Three questions, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> um, when did you start looking into this case? I know it goes back at least to the early 90s, because at the very beginning of your book, you talk about a trip you made with your family on Christmas in 1991 to the home, uh, former home of Jeffrey McDonald and his family, where the murders were committed uh, on the grounds of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So you were obviously very interested at that point, dragging your family on Christmas Day to see this site of these horrific murders. It's a case that has fascinated me for many, many years. And it's not just simply because I'm convinced that he's innocent. I wasn't at all convinced of his innocence at first. It's because it's clearly a miscarriage of justice, and the more that I've found out about it over the years, the more evident that is. It's just clear that the guy did not receive a fair trial in Raleigh in 1979. You can argue endlessly about this case. Uh, I don't think you can very convincingly argue that what happened in that federal courtroom was in any way fair or due process. Legitimate. When did you come to that conclusion? Well, there are lots of little conclusions dotted all the way through this book. When you investigate a murder, there are lots of alternative theories about what could have happened. And in the McDonald story, you have an alternative, a very clear, well defined alternative. Uh, the police arrive at the McDonald house early. In the morning of February 1970, uh, they're answering an emergency call that was made by Jeffrey McDonald, a Green Beret doctor educated at Princeton and Northwestern. He tells a story of four intruders that broke into the house and killed his family, a hippie chick, a black guy, and two white men. The police hear the story, and they conclude he's lying. As far as they're concerned, there are no intruders. The wife and two baby daughters were killed by McDonald himself. So as an investigator, what I need to think about is what's the evidence for version A and what's the evidence for version B? People have often told me, oh, he comes up with this cockamamie theory of the hippies did it. It's ridiculous. Laughable. Well, there are lots of cockamamie stories in this world that turn out to be true. By the way, uh, just to add a little detail there, his story is that these four hippies said things like, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. And in fact, the word pig is found scrawled in blood on the headboard of his uh, and his wife's bed, just as in, or very similar to, the Tate-LaBianca murders that had happened just some months before, the killings by the Manson family, in which the word pig was found scrawled on the wall of Sharon Tate's home after she was murdered. Um, so 
it's sounding like he's invented, uh, you know, perhaps a copycat killing uh, or a copycat story. <laughs> there is a monkey see, monkey do principle in all of human activity. But why is it Jeffrey McDonald copying the Mansons rather than some hippies in Fayetteville, North Carolina? What tells you that it's McDonald who made it up in an attempt to deflect blame? That was the argument, by the way, of the police, is that he had staged the crime scene. He tried to make it look like hippies had broken into the house. And by the way, uh, you know, at least moderately injured himself in an effort to make himself look as though he was also attacked and knocked unconscious and stabbed uh, in the attempt to defend himself and his family. Now, by the way, these are military police who are called to the, the scene and, and conduct the initial investigation on this uh, military base, Fort Bragg. And uh, you make it clear, and others have made it clear over the years, that they uh, screwed up the crime scene disastrously. Uh, all kinds of people were allowed to walk through it and rearrange things. Uh, evidence was not um, collected in some cases. In some cases, it wasn't properly handled. And there were many other missteps besides but they did settle on him as the prime suspect very, very quickly and didn't really pursue, to any great degree, his version, for which there was some very suggestive evidence out there, uh, people who matched some of his descriptions, especially the woman, the hippie chick. And we could go into great detail there, but let me just ask the question, why did they focus on Jeffrey McDonald almost immediately and not pursue the alternative? I think Often, crimes are quote-unquote solved because they're simple solutions mm -hmm. that suggest themselves. Mm -hmm. The simpler version of what happened in that house that night is he lived there. He lived there with his wife, with his two baby daughters. Um, it's one-stop shopping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't have to look far afield. Uh, there he is. He lives in the home. He's the culprit. Let's bring him to justice. And, uh, you know, to add to that, while his wife and two young daughters were brutally murdered, stabbed multiple times, he was only, you know, lightly to moderately wounded. One puncture wound did uh, pierce a lung. He did have a mild concussion, but nothing like the level of their injuries. So why was he left alive? I'm sure that had something to do with it. That also had a lot to do with it. The fact that he was alive and the other members of his family were dead. Why was he left alive? Now, there were a few complicating factors. You know, if you're a, a proponent of Jeffrey McDonald's version, they talked about fiber evidence that in the living room where he had supposedly fought off these intruders, you know, there weren't fibers from his pajama top that he was wearing, and yet there were fibers from his pajama top in the rooms where his kids and wife were found. Uh, there were supposedly a few other bits of his story that didn't quite match what they found. Yeah, there are a number of details that don't really make sense. I think that is part of what has vexed people about this story from the very, very beginning. One thing I do know about stories is that stories never really completely make sense. Think of it as a jigsaw puzzle, pieces that just don't fit in at all. What really convinced me about this particular case, two things, that all of the physical evidence that they had said incontrovertibly proves his guilt 
was much weaker than they claimed. I mean, we can go through it step by step if you like. But there was another set of details which I also feel are important. Call it coincidences. The first responder, Ken Micah, on the way to the McDonald home that morning, saw a woman not far from the McDonald house standing in the fog and rain. He arrives. McDonald gives him his account of the four intruders, and it clicks immediately. Ken Micah says to himself, Oh, my God, it sounds like the person I just saw outside near the house. Uh, He tries to tell his commanding officer to go and pick her up, but no one seems interested in doing so, and she disappears. There's your first coincidence. Mm -hmm. No, here's the second. A narcotics cop in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Prince Edward Beasley, hears the reports on the radio of the four assailants and says to himself, oh my God, I know who this woman is. This is one of my informants, Helena Stokely. And he goes to pick her up. Has trouble finding her. She has really no good alibi of where she has been that night. And she starts telling people that she actually had been in the house at the time of the murders. When does a coincidence or a set of coincidences become more than a coincidence? Stokely continued to confess, essentially to confess over the next 10 years, again and again and again and again to anybody who would listen. The prosecution contended that she was drug-addled, crazed, one of those people that just comes forward and is willing to confess to anything. The part of my goal in writing this book was to bring Helena Stokely back to life, the discredited Helena Stokely back to life. Is there a reason we should believe her? I want to talk about Helena Stokely, of course, uh, in just a moment, but just to back up and cover a few bases here, things that might be important for our listeners to know. About the physical evidence, it is very confusing to read about. Um, Add the complicating factor that it was mishandled and also misreported and maybe suppressed during the subsequent hearing and trial. The defense never had a chance in some cases to properly examine it. And therefore, it is horribly muddled, uh, the case based on physical evidence. And there's the problem of motive. Why does a guy kill his wife and two young daughters, his pregnant wife, by the way, a guy with zero history of violence, right? Zero history of pathological behavior. True? Yes. Why does he do that? Well, people have to come up with some fairly long reaches to even begin to imagine why. And the stories include he was mad that his daughter had wet the bed that night, gotten an argument with the wife, and it escalated and everybody ended up dead, right? Uh, another that was proposed... The Joe McGinnis argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going there. I'm going there. The Diet ju- pills. <laughs> Diet pills. Plus psychopathy. Yeah, yeah. Plus bedwetting <laughs> equals mass murder. Mass murder. But a guy who never before and never since has ever shown any violent tendencies, never shown any psychopathic tendencies, no acting out along those lines, right? Uh, so there's a real problem with the case on that level as well. Well, the prosecutors at trial, aware of this fact, said, we don't have to show you that Jeffrey McDonald was the kind of person 
who could have committed these murders. All we have to show you is that he did. Yeah, I mean, it is true that you don't have to show why if you can show that someone committed the crime, but that usually involves incontrovertible evidence, and and we don't have it here. Um, I'm reminded of a nice pair of uh, statements at two different points in your book. One is from the federal prosecutor at the trial that ultimately convicted Jeffrey McDonald of murder, and he's speaking to the jury, and he says of the physical evidence, things do not lie. Another quote is from the defense attorney, Bernard Siegel, also speaking to the jury, who says, physical evidence lies there. The fibers lie there. Everything lies there. The only thing that is speaking is not the physical evidence, but it is the interpreter speaking. Errol, I've talked to you enough to know that I think you side with Bernard Siegel on that, that objects don't tell stories. We tell stories using objects. Uh, evidence always has to be seen in the context of a theory, in the context of an argument, a point that you're trying to make um, or refute. So to think that evidence has a voice, like a hidden squeaky voice that says, hello, please pay attention to me, I'm evidence. It just simply doesn't work that way. And Blackburn saying things don't lie. Well, things don't talk. I mean, they don't lie or tell the truth. Yes. The problem with legal cases like this is that what makes sense of these things or makes nonsense of them is the human actors. And in this case, you've got human actors who are so um, maddeningly impossible to pin down in some cases. Probably the most maddening is the person you mentioned earlier, Helena Stokely, who is the woman in the floppy hat, perhaps, the woman wearing the floppy hat and boots that Jeffrey McDonald described as being among the intruders. She actually owned a floppy hat and boots that she wore during this time and a blonde wig. He described the, the woman as blonde. So you pointed out that uh, Ken Micah, the MP who was the first on the scene, had seen a woman matching that description just a couple blocks away from Jeffrey McDonald's house. And she proceeds over the ensuing years until up to her death, was it in 1983? Yes. To tell various people that she had been at the McDonald house the night of the murders. The problem is that she was a drug addict. She was someone who said on that very night she was on mescaline. She was also strung out on heroin at this time and also smoked pot that very night. And her recollections over these various accounts are sometimes almost like visions, almost like apparitions. Uh, you know, I see blood, I see blood. You know, I can almost see the little girl's rocking horse. They're almost always accounts that have some quality of fuzziness that, that make you think that she might be imagining it based on the accounts she's read of the crime and the fact that she was approached as a person of interest. She might have internalized all this stuff. And her accounts vary over the years. There's one particularly detailed one that she gave to an investigator named Ted Gunderson, where she talks about being a member of a satanic cult, about having gone to the house that night with a bunch of people, more than the four that uh, that Jeffrey McDonald described, and having actually talked to McDonald uh, because they were there to set him straight about uh, his work as a, uh, a doctor and apparently not doing enough for local drug addicts. That doesn't match McDonald's account at all. So, you know, maybe she 
verifies McDonald's story. On the other hand, she always leaves some loose end or many loose ends. That's quite correct. But the question, of course, is should the jury have heard this? And they didn't. And they did not. And another very, very big question is that Helena Stokely, who was brought to Raleigh in 1979, along with six witnesses who had heard her confess to being in the house, when she got on the stand, she suddenly couldn't remember anything. Mm-hmm. She'd remember a broken hobby horse in the house, but not much else. And so the prosecutors and the judge used this as an excuse to prevent any of the other people from testifying, any of the people who had heard her confess. And then 25 years after the fact, the federal marshal came forward and said that she had been threatened. One of the prosecutors, James Blackburn, had threatened her if she continued to say she'd been in the house, threatened her with first-degree murder charges. Basically, she was told to shut up. There's always the possibility that the police framed and railroaded a guilty man. I don't believe that's what's happened, but if you ask me, can I give you ironclad proof that Jeffrey McDonald is innocent, I cannot. But I can tell you that he was railroaded. You report some remarks by a man named Michael Malley, who was an attorney and friend of Jeffrey McDonald, who actually served uh, on the defense team for a time. He was McDonald's roommate at Princeton. Right, right. He worked off and on as one of McDonald's attorneys for well over a decade. And he uh, is trying to explain to Jeffrey McDonald (laughs) at one point that there's a difference between not guilty, which he calls a legal concept, and innocent, which is a fact. And all a defense team has to convince the jury of is that the person is not proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's different from proving innocence, which is a much higher standard. Though you are personally convinced that uh, McDonald is innocent, your book really makes the case that, innocent or not, he was certainly not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I want to ask you, though, um, you know, you point out correctly that, uh, I'll quote your book, it is possible to cherry-pick evidence to support any conclusion. Did you do any cherry-picking? Cherry-picking is inevitable. Yeah. You pick certain facts and exclude others, and to claim otherwise would be disingenuous. Did I try to be fair? I believe I did. I tried to deal with some of the most incriminating evidence and to show why I did not believe it was incriminating. That's not cherry-picking. That's trying to address some of the claims made by the prosecution. There's always the risk of seizing on one thing and ignoring something else. But this is a book, call it a meta book, or a meta detective story in this sense. I'm interested in in that whole phenomenon. That's one of the things that the book is about. It's about how we look at evidence, how we ignore things and uh, seize on other things. All the ways in which error, I call it a wilderness of error, the way that error is introduced into an investigation. Uh, 
Uh, confirmation bias is just one kind of error among many. Uh, the idea that you have a theory, say, for example, the theory that there were no intruders in the house, and then you don't look for evidence of intruders. You um, ignore that evidence. But there's lots of other ways in which very bad investigative things can happen. For example, history, historical evidence as well as criminal evidence in a crime scene is perishable. You don't collect it in a timely fashion. It's not just going to sit there and wait for you to collect it. <laughs> Stuff was taken out of that house, but at a certain point, the entire crime scene was destroyed. Everything was burned, and the entire building was razed to the ground. There's nothing left of it. Evidence can be made to disappear. It can be destroyed. It can be corrupted. Um, and... This case is like a textbook on investigative error. I know you, you use this title, Wilderness of Error, because you've loved that phrase a very long time. It's, it's from a, a short story by Edgar Allan Poe, and you finally had a project that was perfect for that title. But did you ever consider quoting another person in your book, Dr. John Thornton, a forensics expert who worked for the uh, defense of Jeffrey McDonald, he has a wonderful phrase in here. He called the case a colossal cluster. Good title also. Um, I still prefer my title, but thank you. <laughs> um, we have this idea that the state has more power than any individual. And so we have certain rules to make things more equitable. Uh, among those rules, the so-called Brady rules, where if the prosecution gets material which is potentially exculpatory for the defendant, they can't sit on it like a goose on an egg. They have to turn it over to the defense. It's a way of making things a little bit more fair, a little bit more equitable. This case is a mess. Stuff withheld, prosecutors writing memos about how they can withhold material rather than their responsibility to give it to the defense team. Um. Some people who spoke to you spoke of being utterly convinced beyond even a shadow of a doubt that Jeffrey McDonald is guilty. Now, almost all those people, maybe all of those people, have an investment in that version, Right. They, they committed to it at some point, and once you've committed to something like that, there seems to be a huge psychological resistance to changing your mind. But did you ever get a sense for, for how someone could be utterly convinced that he's guilty? People don't give up their beliefs easily. Once you come to a conclusion, chances are you will hang on to that conclusion no matter what whether it was inconsistencies in McDonald's story or the fact that he was alive or was not as badly injured as people felt he should have been, given what happened to his family, what happened in the house that night. Once you've painted him as a cold-blooded, remorseless, psychopathic killer, it's very, very hard to move people off that particular dime. 
One of the reasons I've been fascinated by this case, I suppose, for so many years is because they're cases that resolve easily. A thin blue line, I can't quite say easily, it was two and a half years of investigating, but it resolved. And there are other cases that never come together. Well, your book, um, I would say, doesn't crack the case. Um, Every door that you open and every corridor you go down, and I mean you, the investigator, any investigator in this case, only leads to more doors and more doors. I mean, it is amazing how many promising leads uh, just end up inconclusive. Well, here's one thing that frustrated me very recently. Stokely had said that the hobby horse was broken. And then a friend of the family out of nowhere, Helen Fell, had told me that she knew that the hobby horse was broken. It was sent broken, and this is before the murders. And she adds, well, how could Stokely possibly have known this unless she was in the house that night? Right. We should uh, just clarify. One of the two children, was it Kimberly? Kristen, yes. Kristen, uh, the younger daughter? Yes. uh, Had a rocking horse. Uh, It was there in her bedroom. Pictures of it were published in the newspaper. It was among the sort of visions that that Helena Stokely later recalled, you know, glimpses of things. She never had a, a completely detailed and coherent story, but she said, I see this or I remember this. One of the things was a rocking horse, and she said she remembers that it was broken. And though the uh, she could have seen the pictures in the newspaper of the horse, they did not show it to be broken, but you found out that, indeed, it seems to have been broken, perhaps a detail that only someone there that night would have known. Although, again, it's like so many things that Helena Stokely said. We, can't, we just can't be sure. By the way, when you and I spoke before, you said you might have come up with some, some new evidence on your own. Is that the thing you were talking about, the... Yes. I felt that I couldn't just simply believe Helen fell. Yeah. There were several things that I needed to do as a detective, certain kinds of due diligence. Um, I had to be able to establish that there's no way that Stokely could have heard about the horse being broken unless she had been there. And so I searched through all of the Fayetteville newspapers and all of the records to see when she first mentioned it. She actually mentioned it early in 1970, even before the first military proceeding uh, against Jeffrey McDonald. I needed to prove that the hobby horse was broken. Was it really broken? Who has the hobby horse? And so I made call after call after call trying to talk to people who were friends of the McDonald's, who were in the house. I tried to call the babysitter. I must have called her some 10, 15 times, sent registered letters, and I finally got a call from her husband telling me that if I continued to bother her, they would call the police. It's one of the occupational hazards of being a detective. You try as hard as you possibly can. Sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes you get the evidence that you're searching for, and sometimes you're out of luck. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the larger meaning of the story you tell does have to do with 
the way human cognition functions <laughs> and how we come to think we know things and, and, and the role of storytelling and narrative in that. Absolutely. That's at the heart of this book. It is. And it's, it's funny because that's been a repeated theme of my radio show for, for months now, uh, storytelling and what it does to us. In a court case, of course, uh, sometimes seemingly fragmentary evidence and, and disconnected bits and pieces are all linked together in essentially two stories, one presented by the defense and one presented by the prosecution. And may the best story win. Uh, let the jury decide which one's more convincing. Uh, you make a good case here that once the investigators from the very earliest had decided on a storyline that only led more pieces to fall into place and uh, forced pieces that might not have fallen in there to fit. You force fit things once you've got a story going. Um, is it possible to operate without buying into a story at all? Is it possible to go very far down this road of looking at all the facts without using one story or another to organize them. Well, here's what I do. Yeah, yeah. As an investigator. Yeah. I take a sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle. Let's put uh, McDonald's version of what happened on one side and Stokely's version of what happened on the other. And now let's look for two different things for each of these stories. Say, uh... The police are right, and Jeffrey is the killer. What is exculpatory and what is inculpatory? Is there anything that tells me that he couldn't possibly have been the killer? Is there anything that tells me he had to have been the killer? And do the same thing for the alternative version, say the Stokely version, that uh, there were intruders in the house. Is there anything that tells me that there had to have been intruders? And is there anything that tells me that there couldn't possibly have been intruders? Well, to me, there is evidence of intruders. What tells me that Jeffrey had to have been the killer? I'm sorry. Nothing. Um, what tells me he couldn't possibly have been the killer? The evidence is weak. Uh, Errol, you talked about your method to try to stay objective through this process and not get seduced by a storyline of simply lining up the facts in, in several columns. And I sort of did that mentally, not nearly as rigorously as you, but I did that mentally while I was reading your book. And in addition to a few yes-nos, supports McDonald, supports the prosecution, yes or no, I have a lot of inconclusives in my little uh, ledger here. I wonder, has anybody ever thought about or proposed, or am I just crazy to think that it, maybe it's neither story, maybe it's a combination of both? That is that McDonald did have a hand in this, along with some other people, and there's some things he's never told us? I think there is always room for what I would call recherche possibilities, <laughs> other than those two versions that we're talking well, about. Well, the two have so many problems. It just seems to me that why not consider some third possibility? Yes, why not? But what that third possibility might be? Well, here's a possibility for you. Helena Stokely says that, in fact, these people actually knew about McDonald, Jeffrey McDonald as yeah. a doctor, and maybe even knew him personally, that he had had some dealings with them, that he had not been helpful to them as drug addicts or may have been punitive or something like that, and that, and that they were going there to shake him down or 
intimidate him or reason with him, I don't know, that night, and it got out of hand. Have people looked into that possibility that he knew these these guys? Uh, I believe uh, yes and no. I mean, there's always the possibility he had seen this group around town or that they had come into his emergency room. I still think it's hard for me to imagine that those people um, were involved with Jeffrey and we have never found any evidence of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just wondered if it had been investigated. Probably not as well as it should, like many of the aspects of this case. Yeah, and I mean, beyond that, I'm just fantasizing, actually, you know, like this third possibility. Did he have some dealings with them that maybe he doesn't want to talk about and therefore never really gave the whole story? Uh, I think that is that is at least possible, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um Back to the the bigger theme, though. I didn't address, by the way. Someone asked me, well, why didn't you address all of the other multiple possibilities of what might have happened? And maybe I should have. But I had, I felt, so much to contend with just addressing the two main possibilities. Yes. That I should stick with that rather than go even further afield. Indeed. Uh, It's just that... As I, you know, tried to, with increasing futility, add up all the evidence you present to convince me of one side or the other, uh, you know, I was reminded again of your major theme, that, that stories seem to be necessary. Otherwise, the data just is, is, is coming at you with absolutely no order, um, no legibility whatsoever. So I use these stories to organize the data as I was thinking about it, but then trying to consider the way in which that had channeled me into two binary possibilities and and the way that might not be enough. Um, You're absolutely correct. It's deeply frustrating um, to consider it. And, you know, it does raise huge questions about our ability to know things. And I know you're a believer in in, in truth and and, and objectivity, but it, it can be damn difficult nonetheless. The thing to remember is just because it's hard to uncover the truth doesn't mean there is no truth to be uncovered. (laughs) I agree. Somebody killed these people, and we don't know exactly. But again, your book, uh, the thrust of it is that whether we ever know or not, we can certainly say at this point that it was not a good trial. It was not a good example of American justice. No, it was a terrible, terrible trial. I'm an embarrassing example of American justice. Do you know Scott Turow? I know of him, of course. I interviewed him about six years ago when he'd come out with a book on the death penalty. He, of course, is a well-known American writer of legal and crime fiction, also a former federal prosecutor, and uh, has also worked as a defense attorney. He was commissioned by the then governor of Illinois to be on a panel that weighed the validity of the death penalty and advised the governor on whether to put a moratorium on it, which the governor, Governor Ryan, ultimately did. Scott was on that panel, initially agnostic or maybe even slightly in favor of the death penalty, but in no way opposed to it, and after considering it deeply, came out against it, along with the majority of the panel. Uh, So I talked to him about this book, and we talked about cases that he'd seen where there had been prosecutorial malfeasance in capital cases, and that it really opened his eyes to all of the flaws in the system. Uh, And at that point, uh, I asked him this question. When I think about what makes good fiction, I think of things like doubt, ambiguity, complexity, uh, which is one reason why 
an innocent man accused makes a far better story than we've got the right guy, let's try him right. and execute him. Right. Um, do you think the sensibility um, that makes for good fiction, that sense of looking for the non-obvious, questioning the open and shut case, is it odds in some way with the kind of certainty and confidence that it takes to be a good prosecutor? Well, I, you know, I never found... Um, I, I never found the novelist undermining the prosecutor, uh, but I found throughout the time that I've practiced law that uh, the kind of qualities of doubt that you talk about, of being able to recognize inherent contradictions, um, do make me constantly aware of the limitations of the law. Uh, certainly for me, um, you know, the watershed moment as a prosecutor came about four years along when we were trying to induce a defendant to plead guilty, and his lawyer said, um, well, he won't plead because you guys don't have it right. And my colleague on the case, a senior prosecutor who had been at it far longer than I had, looked at him and he says, of course we don't have it right. The government never has it exactly right. You know, all we're right about is that he's guilty. And I realized at that moment that, that, that Steve had put his finger on an essential truth. You know, the, the so-called truth-finding system that prosecutors speak for uh, is a kind of blind elephant stumbling around. And, uh, you know, it does trample the right village most of the time. But um, that's only because the target's so big. And um, it, it, was a, it was a revelation to me. Did you catch that, Errol? I certainly did. What do you think of that description, blind elephant that tramples the right village most of the time? Well, say that's the case. It still makes me sad for that village that was the wrong village that got trampled. <laughs> <laughs> Call me a bleeding heart. <laughs> I remember years ago when Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts. Where you live. Where I live. And there was talk of reinstituting the death penalty. And people complained, well, you know, there's a problem with the death penalty. You can make mistakes. And if you make a mistake with the death penalty, it's very, very hard to remedy. <laughs> and Romney said, well, no problem. We'll just make it infallible. <laughs> well, I found this argument somewhat less than persuasive. Okay, you'll make it infallible, but that's the problem. <laughs> it is fallible, and it's always going to be fallible. Uh, you asked me earlier, is it possible to look at evidence without having some kind of narrative in your hip pocket? And it may not be. We may be prisoners of narrative, but that doesn't mean we can't do a jailbreak, <laughs> that we can't escape. Any narrative can be tested against evidence and defeated. That's what is so extraordinary about nonfiction as opposed to fiction. A writer decides that a man is guilty in fiction. There ain't nothing you can do about it. But in nonfiction, in the real world, a narrative can always be tested against evidence and facts. Well, this is true, but much like the death penalty, almost like the death penalty, it is awfully hard to undo 
a sentence like Jeffrey McDonald's that's been adjudicated as much and as long as his case has. I mean, he's been through numerous appeals and reviews. He's seeking yet another review. Is that right? There's a, there's a hearing coming up? Here's one thing that your listeners may know about, may not know about. I got Randall Adams out of prison as a result of my movie and my investigation. This is 1988. 25 years ago, nearly 25 years ago. In the interim, the laws have changed. It's almost impossible now to file a second appeal. The Supreme Court has restricted, hugely restricted, the possibility of filing second, third, fourth appeals, even when new evidence has been uncovered. It's even been argued, and this is in the United States of America, that factual innocence may not be grounds for overturning a death sentence. Mm. So just imagine yourself being strapped into that electric chair. You've come up with new evidence proving you didn't do it, sorry. Oh, so very sorry. As you know, you should have appealed it around the time of your initial conviction. And then you say, you scream, but but the evidence was suppressed. We didn't find out about it until years later. Sorry, buddy. The way the laws are constituted now since McCleskey and Herrera I probably would not have been able to overturn Randall Adams' conviction in the Thin Blue Line. It's another interesting wrinkle in this case. There was a moratorium on the death penalty in the 70s uh, because of the Supreme Court decision, Furman v. Georgia. And it's the luck of the draw. Uh, if it had happened 10 years sooner or 10 years later, Jeffrey McDonald would have been sentenced to death for these crimes and in all likelihood would have been executed. In any case, it's going to take something just short of a miracle, probably, to get him ever exonerated. Uh, It would be nice to exonerate him, and maybe evidence will show up. But there's a a somewhat more modest goal. Uh, There's a hearing in Wilmington, North Carolina, in federal court at the end of this month. I will be there to decide whether that trial in 1979 was fair. And I believe the decision is a very simple one. It was not fair, it should be overturned, and McDonald should be released. Now, the prosecutors could say, we'll retry him, we'll just try him again and convict him. Uh, That's what they said when Randall Adams was released in 1988. No, they're not. You know why? Because they didn't have a case the first time around, Mm. or if they had one, it was a very, very weak one. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a case now. They're never going to retry him. If the case is overturned, he will walk out of prison. And regardless of whether I can prove that he didn't do it, I can incontrovertibly prove he got railroaded, he got screwed. When's that uh, hearing? Starts on the 17th. I'll be in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, 17th of September. Hmm. 
and, and the outcome you think could be not only to rule that the trial wasn't fair, but ultimately lead to the overturning of his conviction? I don't believe that Judge Fox, who was a close friend of Franklin Dupree, the original trial judge, I don't believe he's going to overturn this conviction because he's had ample opportunity to do it, and he's decided against McDonald again and again and again and again and again. He wouldn't even have had this hearing at the end of the month unless he had been ordered to have it by the Fourth Circuit. Mm. So here's what I think will happen. I think he will do nothing. It will go back to the Fourth Circuit, and ultimately, and this is my hope, that the Fourth Circuit will overturn the conviction and set him free. You think your book could play a role in that? Uh, I think it already has. You know, I can't know these things for sure, but this hearing, uh, no one was particularly interested in it. Uh, Now there's an enormous amount of interest. I'm worried whether I'm going to be able to get in myself. (laughs) I I believe CNN, CBS News, Inside Edition, uh, uh, many, many national magazines are going to be there. And um, let's see what happens. You've been investigating, I assume, on and off this case for more than 20 years. Why did it take you so long to come out with the book? Would it have been more useful five, six, seven years ago, ten years ago? Mm, Maybe it would have been. I, I couldn't write. I wasn't a writer. I struggled with writing over the years, and... One day, someone called from the New York Times and asked me to write, and I said, you know, I don't think I can do this. And now I'm writing. And I said to myself, you know, you should publish this. And I tried to publish it in the New York Times. By the time I had shown it to my editor, it was already 40,000 words plus. (laughs) And he said to me... You know, you keep pushing the envelope here, uh, but I just don't think the Times can devote a huge part of op-ed to a 42-year-old murder case in 20 or 30 installments. And so it went to Penguin. Got it. I would have preferred to have gotten it out in the Times, but it went to Penguin and it metastasized from 40,000 to 150,000 words in the end. I hope it's not too damn long. I think it's interesting. You struggled near the end to complete it, I know, because uh, your Twitter, you know, sort of reported on your progress toward the end. Obviously, an incredibly difficult task. Huge amounts of information, some of it very complicated, some of it contradictory. But you managed to organize it in a way that it's completely readable. Oh, good. And it can be followed. Thank God. I'm imagining that was what the struggle was, or at least in part the struggle? Of course. Yeah. Um, You don't want to hand people a big garbage can (laughs) filled with information. You still do want to hand them a narrative, but this is a different kind of narrative. It's an investigator's narrative. Um, I wanted to create a chronicle of someone obsessed with evidence and their struggle with evidence in an attempt to understand the nature of reality. Errol, um, several people that you interviewed suggested that the McDonald case uh, has a way of damaging those who, who get involved. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's damaged the careers of 
various people in the legal system who who were involved. It's left people, you know, unsettled, disturbed, hurting. There's the there's the open wound of the crime itself, which was horrible. It was a truly, truly terrible, terrible crime. And it, and it hurts to even think about it. And then there's the reminder that the justice system can be a blind elephant, not necessarily trampling the right village. And then there's that deeper, almost like epistemological anxiety uh, that when it comes to some of the most important matters, we don't necessarily know anything. By the way, that is the right way. I like the way you characterize it. Epistemological anxiety. (laughs) People have, from David Hume's treatise on human understanding to the present time, have talked about various problems of evidence and inductive reasoning. Uh, The famous example, of course, is uh, the turkey who is visited every day by the farmer (laughs) and is brought food and comes to welcome his presence. And then we arrive the day before Thanksgiving. The turkey is very happy to see the farmer, but on that particular day, he's carrying a well-sharpened axe. Yes, inductive reasoning does have that problem. The black swan problem. Indeed. It's the, the black swan problem is the turkey problem. <laughs> exactly. And, and i got to say, your book left me, as a, as a person who does like to see justice done and, and hates to think about the wrong people behind bars, um, uh, and also likes certainty in a, in a more metaphysical sense, it left me feeling queasy. And I'm still kind of queasy. How, how are you doing? You've, you've spent 20 years on this. Queasy. Queasy, but determined that uh, here's how I reason uh, to myself for what it's worth. Mr. Morris, sir, I should be polite to myself. Mr. Morris, sir, are you absolutely convinced that this trial was wrong, deeply wrong? I'll even go so far as to say morally wrong. And the answer is I am. Is there any piece of evidence that you can present to yourself that proves to you that Jeffrey McDonald is the real killer? No, I can't. There's evidence that makes me uncomfortable. There's evidence that doesn't fit cleanly into either scenario. But there's nothing that tells me he had to have done it. Let him go. Hmm. Well, Errol, thank you. So, did you like the book? <laughs> yes. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't know. I just had I had the need to do this. I mean, I um, when I imagined it as a movie, when I tried to sell it as a movie years ago, I said, I'd like to bring the alternative story to light. Uh, you know, Stokely's been ridiculed. This whole alternative version of what happened has been ignored. Let's look at it as though it's not something to be ignored, but something to be taken seriously. Imagine how many people saw or read Fatal Vision, the five or six million people who read the book, the supposed 50 million people plus who watched the TV movie with Eva Marie Saint and Carl Malden. A story 
disseminated so widely. I don't think that could even happen today. How do you escape from a narrative? How do you escape from a media prison? Maybe there is no escape, but I like the challenge. Well, you know, part of the the queasiness that stays with me is the fact that this is a highly scrutinized crime. This is one that has gotten more attention than all but a few over the last few decades. And it has all these problems. Just imagine how many there are out there, how many convictions, how many court decisions are out there that never got one one thousandth of this degree of inspection and how many of those are wrong or or mistaken in some way. How many have I read about in the newspaper and walked away comfortably thinking they got the right person, you know, without ever really knowing? I mean, you've opened a door into the abyss here. You ask if I think the book is good. Well, I, th- I think I'm saying something a lot more important than whether it's good or bad when I say that. Yeah, um, people have obsessed over this case in one way or another. Uh, not because they have too much time on their hands. <laughs> so that's always at least one possibility. They've obsessed, and I can speak for myself in this regard, because there's something disturbing about it. There's something about it that's not right. Well, Errol, I, I do want to talk again, um, but I want to give you a break. <laughs> okay, and we will talk again soon, and I thank you for everything. You bet. Thank you. Okay, take care. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Errol Morris. His new book is A Wilderness of Error, The Trials of Jeffrey McDonald. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I am your host, Robert Polly, and I will be back next week. You can always listen to past shows and learn more at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com.